I'm enjoying overhearing the conversations, and I trust that you're finding uh, our discussions and our presentations of great benefit to you. Uh, I've been sharing with my friends, I've been waiting 25 years uh, to engage in this conversation from our perspective, and uh, I'm really grateful that what you see evidenced here in the presenters and, and the topics is not just Western missionaries talking uh, about what should happen in missions, but we have the privilege of hearing national leaders as well engage on these critical subjects and teaching us. And so the discussions and presentations today, I, I trust, are a reflection of really the mission of TMAI, and that is to equip, uh, to encourage, and to stand with national church leaders around the world. As we transition to this next segment, uh, we're going to take a few minutes and uh, facilitate a panel discussion on a topic that I think is very uh, important for us to consider. It's the development of theologies composed and written by national church leaders. I want to introduce to you uh, our panel members who are here. Next to me is David Beakley. David serves as the Dean of Christ Seminary in Polokwane, South Africa. He served there for 17 years. And uh, I know from my own personal experience with him, and more importantly, the testimony of his students, uh, David really does have an understanding of the cultural dynamics of ministry uh, in an African context, and uh, we we'll look forward to his comments today. Next to him is Carlos Montoya. Carlos serves as the president of Ministerios Evangelicos de las Americas, which is our TMAI training center in Honduras. And uh, Carlos will be reflecting that perspective uh, from a Latin uh, context as well. Thank you, Carlos, for being with us. Next to Carlos is Cecil Stallnecker. Cecil uh, has been a professor uh, and was actually chairman of the Intercultural Studies Program at Tyndale Theological Seminary in Amsterdam. Uh, he served uh, in Belgium and uh, in the Netherlands for 34 years as a missionary, and his passion has been to equip and, and to train national leaders uh, in that particular setting. And next to Cecil is Chris Burnett. Chris is a master's seminary student, actually the vice president of the student body, and he's the one who's coordinated uh, our panel discussion today. He's done a lot of the heavy lifting in uh, facilitating the coordination between the speakers, but it comes from a personal interest uh, in Chris's heart. He served for many years in Italy, and he saw the need uh, for sound uh, theological resources to be developed, uh, particularly by church leaders there, and uh, is considering actually uh, completing further research for his uh, doctoral studies in this field. So I'm really grateful to you men for joining us uh, today. We've entitled this uh, panel, Post-Colonialism and Contextualization Effects on Vernacular Theologies. And I remember it was well over a decade ago that I picked up my first volume of Will, uh, William Dyerness's book, Emerging Voices in Global Theology. And I remember talking to a buddy from seminary, and I said, we need to engage on this topic of global theologies. And he said to me, there is no such thing. And I thought, oh... I'm concerned. Uh, there is such thing uh, that is being written, composed uh, in a certain cultural contexts, and we need to understand what it is that informs their approach to the composition of these theologies, and certainly from the perspective of inerrancy. I want to pose my first question. I've just asked our panelists to respond uh, as they feel led. Let me take a seat as I do that. All right, gentlemen, missiologists uh, for over 40 years have been engaging the topic of non-Western theology, technically termed vernacular or contextual, local, national, ethnic, or global theologies. These are all terms that are thrown around in this category. Uh, I'd like you to take a moment and help us understand what do we mean by vernacular theologies? 
I'll go ahead and try and answer that. Right. Uh, this is an increasing type of theology that's emerging from different places in the world. And it's not primarily based on scripture, but it emerges out of the cultural experience, economics, historical settings of the people themselves. And so as a result of that, they are, those are the things that are driving the theologies and they're writing these theologies. Scripture does play a role into it, but it's more of a supportive type of, type of role. It's not being driven by, script, by the scriptures, but it, it's a predominant thing that's emerging all over the world and has emerged for many years. Yeah, I might add that uh, part of the reason why the last 40 years so much documentation has come about and so many case studies on what is happening in the theological scene across the world outside of the West is mainly because the colonial era has ended and now we are in what they're determining as anti-colonialism. This idea that the Western voice is no longer valid, it is no longer um, helpful, and so as uh, a first, a second, a third generation of missionaries are now coming out and theologians are rising up from their own fields, what they are, how they are categorizing the different contexts of theology uh, is so locally theirs and with their expressions that, um, that this is just, this is an overwhelming uh, majority response in the world in theology and it really has nothing to do with the West anymore. Um, just to get a, a picture of, uh, of this term, uh, I guess I, I see it from, from where we are in Africa, is that people develop a view of God first, and then the scripture comes, and then I interpret scripture through how I see what I know God should be, based on my experience, and, and of course, in, in, in much of the third world uh, environment, their experience is, is ex extremely tough, so it's my view of God and and His uh, the expectations of what God would be like is what I draw in and say I create that theology. Now I come to Scripture and I say, sure, it's authoritative and it's it's, it's inerrant, but it's it has to be filtered through that view of God, and and it, it's not just in those areas. Uh, and I just want to give you one picture that's kind of universal in Bibles and Bible translations uh, in the late. 1800s to 1900s, every Bible uh, had in, in all the critical passages that deal about God being um, a changing God, that kind of thing, it dealt with God repenting, but everything was about a God who didn't change. And then World War I and World War II came, and, and with that, and, and a great debate on the impassibility of God and suffering and the suffering in the world, as a result of that, uh, the first translation changed in 1951, I believe, with the RSV, and that's when we saw God being sorry. And then by 1971, 72, when it came out, it exploded throughout Scripture of saying we have a God who doesn't reconcile suffering so much. And so it's played all throughout the world in our Bible translations. Well, that's going to be very, very common in a world where you live in suffering, you live with questions that aren't answered, and you develop a theology there based on your context and your culture and then we come to the scripture it's not defined by scripture itself take that thought and let's develop a little further um, western theology is often accused of not adequately addressing the questions of people living in the majority world context 
issues that are characterized such as by religious pluralism, secularism, totalitarianism, and so forth. Uh, let me ask this question then. Can theology address the socio-political and economic needs of the modern global church? Well, when we um, speak of theology, really, you know, sometimes we get into all these different terms, theological terms, and uh, whatever's out there. We're really talking about the truth, and, and we have to understand that the truth will have an impact. And our message is not a social-political message. It's not a... Uh, <coughs> economic message, but it is the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ, and we must not be ashamed of that. We have to just say, hey, this is the gospel, this is what the gospel is, and this is what the gospel can do. And so I, I believe we just need to name a spade a spade. It is truth, and um, if you want to call it Western theology or whatever, we are here to preach the truth. Thank you, Carlos. Cecil? Um, Along, along with that, um, we have to realize that if, if we don't address these issues, they will be addressed, and they're being addressed already. Uh, one example we've heard this morning, the prosperity gospel, would be a good example of a, of a type of theology, shall we say. So I think the gospel being, the scriptures being sufficient, um, they do answer life's questions. Um, and people are asking these questions. I, I just returned from the Netherlands, and I was teaching a course on the theology of marriage and family from, with 14 students from 12 different countries. And, uh, you know, one African fellow, he was asking, he wasn't concerned about Ephesians 5. He was concerned about polygamy. Another student uh, from the Congo, he, he, his main question was, how do we, how do we treat from the scripture sterility because in, in his culture he said if a woman doesn't give birth to a child they, they divorce occurs so how does the scripture teach that and having lived in the Netherlands for 15 years uh, same sex marriage, euthanasia these are all issues that have to be dealt with from a biblical standpoint so uh, my view is that as, as Carlos mentioned truth needs to be driving the world view. And if we're not answering these questions, uh, we're going to end up uh, as we are in other ways. Yeah, I would say uh, today it's a really important day for this kind of debate because non-conservative scholars keep writing and saying that everything that we've done up until this, the end of this colonial period really didn't respond to the needs of the people on the field. So they're going to have to find some other way apart from what we've given with systematic theology, I mean, we could even say dispensationalism or whatever camp may have been that brought that in or even really bad theology that the West brought. Well, they didn't uh, take that and run with it and turn it into something of their own. They've just abandoned it. And so now it seems like the West is really apologizing for everything that they did for the last couple hundred years. So that leaves us with a big void. What's going to help uh, people in their socio-political economic problems um, apart from the word of God? So let's, let's say that the West, if we could define it as that conservative scholarship, the inerrantist goes in, if we were to consider that, why would we abandon that and then leave them totally uncovered for, for anything else? And so what you get is that pluralistic dialogue, you get syncretism, you get everything else, and they're still not any closer to resolving their problems. 
we really do need to go back, like these guys are saying, just to the straightforward approach of the Bible through expository preaching. Just to, as, as an example um, on this, the, the question of what, how does the theology address these issues, uh, at, at Christ Seminary we're involved not only in, uh, in, in teaching the students and discipling them, but also, I mean, it's, our whole family's involved in ministry, and so my wife deals with a lot of the high school kids because we live right across deep from a high school. So the high school girls just come over, and, and she has a, a time with them. And, and you get the same kind of question Cecil was talking about. You know, what do I do with my parents uh, say that we need to go visit the witch doctor and, and do these various things because my, my brother has asthma and he, he's not going to take his medication and, and all that kind of stuff. What does the Bible say about honoring your parents versus, you know, going to the occult? And in, in every case, it's like, well, I don't have an answer for that, but here's what the Bible says about how we think. And, and literally a lot of it is, you know, the pressure that's coming is the Bible needs to address these issues like they're going to fix these socioeconomic political problems, and it never has. And never since, you know, the, the, the first century church has never fixed them and whatever fixes were in place were in place for, you know, just a decade or two. Um, but it's to be able to help people get through it because that's what the Reformation was about. Reformation wasn't about changing governments, but it's about how people get through the whatever government God gave them and they were able to excel and create hospitals and create schools and do all that kind of stuff that took place outside of government. And so we have to learn as Christians not to pray for God to get us out of circumstances but to get us through them with stronger backs. I think, I think uh, just a good verse to, um, it'd be great to use scripture for this, isn't it? Uh, a good verse to use. Actually, the whole book of Titus, as, as I was thinking through all the questions that were posed, I said, wow, Titus is the appropriate book for this. Uh, we have uh, this missionary, Paul, training missionaries and sending them to different fields in Crete, and they had a vernacular theology. You know, they were liars and beasts and gluttons. Um, but just listen to his commission. Just in the first verse, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, or if, if you look in the Greek, it could be which leads to godliness, which leads to an impact of your life changing, and so, yes, it's going to change. Truth is going to change. So this is Paul's commission, and I think this is our commission. Take truth so that truth can change lives. My observation is this. Uh, there are many committed Christians who have a love for God, depending on their own theological education uh, and the hermeneutic in which they would adopt and apply to the translation of Scripture, will inform how sound that theology is which they're composing. Uh, which is at the foremost of what we're trying to do in TMAI is equip people to interpret the scriptures accurately based on a sound, consistent hermeneutic. Uh, we're a great champion of national church leaders composing theologies. We want to see them uh, develop the resources for their own churches. As a matter of fact, later in the after this afternoon, we'll hear from uh, two of our faculty members who've done just that. So this is something that we're very supportive of, but we're trying to draw a distinction between uh, sound national theologies and those which are becoming prevalent, uh, and even in reaction to this idea of colonialization. And so uh, rejecting that Western influence and uh, coming up with a truly indigenized uh, uh, theological resource. Uh, could you comment on what you see as the tensions or the dangers in that, and how we can best help or serve uh, national church leaders uh, 
be effective in the composition of these works? Well, certainly one of the dangers that just presents itself in all these publications these days is, is the danger of dialoguing from the wrong angle. There's this idea that uh, we, as the West, that has failed, now we need to approach uh, the majority world with, with just the kind of listening that doesn't, in, doesn't involve itself. It just completely learns, and then we can take whatever truths um, they can give us about the attributes of God or soteriology or really anything in theology and incorporate it into what we do. Um, but they're not talking about dialogue from the other angle that they could actually come and look at some of the ways we present things and our historical grammatical hermeneutic, if you will, and then take that and assimilate it. So it just seems like this idea of listening is very one-sided. They want us to listen very quietly, but they don't want them to engage with anything that we could possibly say. Uh, I Obviously, when it comes to these various theologies uh, there is a there is universal truth there is uh, the faith that's been delivered to the saints and so we are in the body of Christ so I think it's very important that the the total body of Christ be involved in these theologies uh, you know we 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 do learn things I, I I would have to say in my teaching overseas I've learned many things from my African, Asian brothers, uh, my brothers from Eastern Europe. I've learned many outstanding things that have transformed my life. Um, but also, you know, as a, as a believer, I, I can contribute to their lives. So there's a, um, there's a conversation that takes place that is a necessary conversation because we are all in the body of Christ. But... Uh, but we have to agree on the standards there, and the standard is the is the you know God's word, and we should be taking you know culture, history, experience, sociology, psychology through the grid of Scripture, and so I, I think we have to function from that standpoint, and uh, so there needs to be to use kind of a journal uh, uh, idea. There needs to be peer review, shall we say. Very good. I remember a friend telling me uh, when he first began ministering, uh, this was in Africa, and teaching on the issue of spiritual warfare. Uh, he went in as an American missionary speaking from a perspective of what he learned in seminary, which we were addressing that topic in our classes from the perspective of, uh, let's say, the assemblies of God or certain faith healers or things like that. So all the examples were uh, these particularly American forms of expressions of the Pentecostal movement. He said to me, he says, it took me two and a half years to figure out I wasn't answering the questions my students were asking. These students were coming from an animistic perspective. And when we talked about spiritual war warfare and demons, they wanted to know exactly what God's word had to say about these particular realities that they were encountering out in the village. David, maybe you can comment on that. Uh, yeah, no, we, reality. We, we have that uh, in Christ Seminary, um, uh, probably 98 plus percent of our guys come as usually full-blown charismatic folks. Um, you know, I just kind of, one of the banners, you know, of, of what the Bible does is one of our students who came with his Benny Hinn poster uh, to put on the bed there is, is, <laughs> is our 
our language and Greek professor at Christ Seminary right now, and he's, he's teaching, and he can actually teach Africans from an African perspective in that, knowing this is where all the guys come from. They come from a completely different worldview, and, and at least from our experience in Africa is, is exactly what Mark said. In, in teaching, you have to be able to understand that when they're saying that God did not create Satan and they're fighting that kind of issue, that's not the question. The question is one of theodicy. How can a good God create evil and suffering and what's going on? And you've got to learn how to address that and not go into a cessationist, non-cessationist, and you know, all kinds of stuff about demonology, that kind of thing. Because where they're coming from is, is how they've been immersed in a thinking of, of things that affect them and their issues. And you have to be able to see through that and say, now here's how the Bible addresses your real issue. But it's the Bible. And, and exactly as Carlos said, you know, you, you explain to them what the words actually mean. And when people get to train their eyes on the words, that is what clashes with their thinking because they see the conflict. They see the conflict of how I've seen how God is. And I see the words very clearly what are there. And now I have to make a choice. And, and, and it's just such a tremendous joy to see men make that transition before your eyes. And I'll say every lecture here, I know every professor here at the NTMI Seminary, and even my students who I know are here, <laughs> have made that transition. And there's no greater joy to see because the Spirit is working. Because what it is, it's the clash of the actual words of Scripture. Uh, because there's one thing, if I could just imploring you, man, it's kind of something I've been hitting for a while, is that in Genesis 10, God confused the languages. But the one thing he did not confuse is grammar. Every single language in the world, including the Bushmen of South Africa, have a subject, a verb, and an object. They've got that. It's ingrained in our DNA because that's how God reveals himself to us through words, and we uncover it through grammar. So every language in the world, confused or not, has that. So our task is to say, if I give you those skills and you see that and it clicks, that crushes, as we say, it just crushes every uh, worldview and man-made construct as you watch these men have to deal with it. And so it's actually, it's, it's teaching what those words actually say because you are fighting a worldview. You're not fighting an inerrancy kind of issue at first. Just add to that uh, real quick. If there in Latin America, of course, just as Pastor Miguel mentioned, uh, the charismatic movement is is prolific. Um, one of the greatest impacts that Meta has had there in Honduras when we first got there was just the exaltation of the sufficiency of Scripture, which exalts Christ. And um, there was one one fellow who was struggling with. The, idea, the ideals of the ideas of charismatic movement and all. And he did, a, this was an interesting Google search. He did a, a Google search on charismatics and sufficiency of scripture. And you don't find much together. And then he realized, wow, you know, this is, this is definitely a clash between these two. Very good. You know, uh, I appreciate both those uh, very specific examples of the Thinking in terms of, of how do we move forward and how do we serve the church together. Cecil, you clearly said that we need to be engaged in discussion with one another so that we can bring uh, a, a common commitment to a sound hermeneutic approach. Chris talked about 
a hermeneutic of humility. And this has become very popular in the West that, well, we can't take any position of confidence or conviction from the word of God. And this really trails on the heels of religious pluralism and this whole idea of ecumenicism that, you know, you can't have a definitive, confident stance on any point of theology or doctrine. So we'll practice this hermeneutic of humility, that everybody's voice is equal around here. That's much different than having a spirit of humility and grace, and particularly as a Westerner going into uh, a cross-cultural setting and working with and serving your brother. That's what I heard you say, Cecil, is how do we partner together to strengthen the church and uh, certainly to uh, respect and to uh, support the national church leaders as they take the lead. That's in our heart to do. So uh, I just want to summarize that point of discussion there because this really is what our commitment is, is to respectfully partner together to strengthen the church uh, around the world. I want to thank you men for your thoughts uh, this morning. I know it's been a brief time, but we wanted to introduce this topic to you because these are the realities. These these works are being developed, published, written, distributed around the world. And unfortunately, uh, some are very well-intended. Others have other motivations, I'm sure, but uh, have not benefited from good sound training so that the end product of, of their own creation uh, isn't as sound or consistent with the revelation of Scripture. So we have a great amount of work ahead of us. There are men doing a great work in that regard. We, we support them and we encourage them. And we trust those of you who are listening today have been helped to understand, uh, just given a, a brief insight uh, into the reality of vernacular theology so that you're better equipped. Uh, think of, of the missions elders and pastors who are in the room today. Are you able to understand this issue and engage with the missionaries your church sends out to really understand what it is that they're doing? And are they being equipped and trained uh, to be effective as they go to the field? So thank you men very much. I appreciate uh, your comments today. And they'll be available throughout the day if you have further questions for them. Chris reminded me, uh, if you would like to participate with us. We're going to be developing uh, more content on our website uh, on this topic, uh, giving other illustrations from uh, our faculty around the world on this subject. If you have any particular questions, feel free to email them to us uh, at timai.org. We'd be glad to take your questions and respond to them uh, on our website.